Uh, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to 1 Thessalonians. I know that might sound a little strange, but I want to begin there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 is where I want to, uh, want to uh, kind of start our conversation. Um, Thessalonians is a, or Thessalonica is a city where the Apostle Paul uh, went in the book of Acts to establish a church. And when he writes this letter, and interestingly enough, we're, we're in um, 2 Timothy tonight. And there is an overlap, obviously, between these two, not, not locationally, because the Timothy material is written by Paul uh, to Timothy while he's at Ephesus. But Timothy is one of the writers of the Thessalonian material. And so there's part of our stuff that we'll see tonight that really rings true with this other book, uh, with First with Thessalonians. And it was not a book that I, I knew really well in college. It wasn't even a book that I studied extensively in grad school. Um, it was when I came back to the college to teach, and they, um, there's certain classes everybody wants to teach. Who wants to teach Matthew's gospel? Fight, 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 fight. Even who wants to teach Revelation? Fight, 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 fight. And it's like, who wants to teach First and Second Thessalonians? No one? Okay, Jim, you can do it. You know, that's how it worked. And I remember thinking, I mean, I've never, I've never not really studied this, but I mean, and I fell in love with it. Absolutely fell in love with it. I mean, it's surprise, surprise. Every book I read in the Bible, I absolutely fall in love with. But the, the part that I want to look at this morning or this evening, and then to kind of see how it's going to fit with our material from 2 Timothy chapter 2, is how, how naturally and how readily Paul's life and Timothy's life before the church shaped what they believed and how they lived. And um, that is just so critical for us to see. And I think it helps us at every level. Um, It helps us understand how to raise our kids. And we have to demonstrate deep biblical truths and we have to be consistent about it. And they need to see it lived out in our lives. That's what our children need to see. Um, And and where we work, uh, they need to know these things that we believe about God. And then they need to see that lived out in our lives. It is so critical. And um, I, I think I'm just going to get a lot of mileage out of this dance thing we're doing on Sunday. You know, uh, the rodeo roundup thing, clappity clop thing, you know, we're doing. And um, Andrea and I uh, have always had an interest. Whenever we hear about dance lessons, we look at each other and we go, we should do this. We should dance. And so we've always talked about it, but very seldom do we actually take the dance lessons. So when we heard that this was happening, we thought we want to do this. And so I'm, 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 I'm in dance lessons with my wife, which is a lot of fun. And uh, Jim and Linda Ward are leading it. And as they were, they're leading it, they're, they're describing how to dance. But to them, it's natural. So they're like, well, don't you understand? It's just this, and then you just you, you swing, and then you, and you move, and you glide, and you just, and as they do it, they're like, hey, no, now, now, now you do it. And I'm just like, you know, I was like, what, what do I mean? And then I tackle Andrea, and it's like, no, no tackling, and a hip check, and no, it's not hockey. And, and, I'm, and, and they're describing it to me like it's the most normal thing in the world. No, don't you understand? It's like step, step. Step, step, and then you, go, you do the side step, and then it's this, and, I'm, and, and last time, uh, last Thursday night, we were learning this waltz, which just looks so beautiful, and have you ever watched someone else dance, and it looks, looks rather simple, I mean, they're good at it, not, not the great dancers, but, but just a good dancer, and you kind of got a little bit of rhythm, and you think, I think I can do this, and then they say, okay, now everybody, grab a partner, and let's go, and it's like nothing is working, nothing is working. And, and the more that I was watching Jim and Linda do this, and the more that Andrea and I were struggling through to do it, and sometimes we would get it, and sometimes we wouldn't get it, and I felt like it was almost always my fault. And as we're walking through this, I couldn't help but feel like God was saying, this is what it's like when you're preaching. This is exactly what it's like for a lot of people when you're preaching. Um, and... Uh, so when, when, when someone is, is talking about Jesus and they say, no, this is what you need to just go home and forgive. Um, this is what you need to do. You need to say no to sin. And you know what you need to do? You need to love your wife like Christ loved the church. And you know what you need to do? You need to read your scriptures and then just apply it. Come on, you know how to do that. And um, again, not one of those moments where you probably want to raise your hand, but uh, it's, it's, it's harder than that in real life and in real time for many people, and probably for you. I would say for all of us. Uh, it, it looks so natural for others. 
And I guess as, a, as, as one of the elders here, as one of the staff here, like our heart goes out in that way. Like this Sunday I'm going to be preaching, and again, I hope you come, but the, the part that I love from this Sunday's message, and I'm, oh, I've been convicted about this so many times, Jesus says to the Pharisees, um, you know how to bind up like people with the burdens of being faithful to God, but you don't help them. You don't lift a finger to help them. And that's one of my biggest concerns is that when I talk about Jesus or, and I would say that our, as a staff, we talked about this in our meeting on Monday. Um, after we're done talking about Jesus, does following him seem, when I say easier, I, I, I don't mean because we've dumbed it down, but because we've explained it well or because we model it well. It is so critical that that happens. Because if not, then we are not rightly um, dividing, it's from our text tonight, we're not, divide, we're not rightly dividing the word of truth or we're living a disconnected life which Paul warns about with Timothy and Paul warns about, uh, to, or he describes how wonderful it is to the Thessalonians and Jesus warns about it in Matthew 23 um, that as we live our lives, it is so important that we demonstrate good belief and good living and when I say good, I don't just mean moral. I mean like follow Jesus kind of good living. And so this is a, a section that I love. And I want you to just hear from, from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Just hear how much Paul says things like, you know, you know, you know. Which is obviously a fact that they know his life. Like they, they see that transparency. And you'll see this transfer over into, into, the, into, into 2 Timothy. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1, you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had, been, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please men, but to please God. So notice that there's this, you know, you know, you know. So Tom, you know, like I've lived my life, you know me, brother, right? There's that. And then, and then in the midst of that is, and then Tom and I both know that this is all done before him. It's all done before God. And our lives are lived out, you know, and we know. And that's what the Apostle Paul's gonna be driving at tonight. So we don't, we don't, we don't, we're not trying to please men, but please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, or with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. Though we could have made a demand as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle. Notice these words. We were gentle among you like a nursing mother caring for her own children. So being, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our, also our own selves because you had become so dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and our toil. We worked night and day that we would never be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses and God also of how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now that's a great, that's one of my favorite sections of scripture where the Apostle Paul is kind of laying out his life and his ministry, and he's doing it in such a way where if, if he's lying, he is exposed. And that's kind of what we're gonna pick up on, and we're going to see Paul in 2 Timothy chapter two carry on that same mentality. And you think about it, this letter, if you go back and you take a look at the very beginning of 1 Thessalonians or 2 Thessalonians, it's Paul, Silvanus, or Silas, and Timothy, these are the writers. So Timothy is on board with this whole way of living and this whole way of acting. Um, again, Paul is writing this final letter to Timothy. This is his last letter that he writes. We're gonna kind of come back and we'll deal with Titus. He had written Titus before he writes this book. He is at the end of his life. He is about to die. He has entrusted Timothy uh, with the work of the ministry in Ephesus. Um, 
And I, I want you to, again, hear the importance and the urgency and the zeal that he has, and yet behind it, an incredible trust in God, an incredible trust in the work of God and the church of God and the kingdom of God and the spirit of God. Um, as you've heard me say many, many, many times, um, I, I, I believe that the church will exist till he comes back. I've, I've got... I've got no, I can't even, I couldn't even go there to think somehow that the church wouldn't exist. And you'll see Paul's excitement about that. But it doesn't mean that there isn't a lot of work for Timothy to do. So look at verse 14 and two kind of major words jump out in that beginning, uh, in that that sentence. The first word is remind them, so to call to their memory yet once again. I want to remind you of these things. I want to remind you of these things. One 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 of the dangers I always have as a preacher is how do I come up with new stuff? How do, I, how do I come up with a new thing? How do I come up with new? And um, one, of the, one of the most difficult things about, especially going through a gospel like Matthew where it's been years, um, and then we slow down and we've got these parables and they're telling very similar things, and it's just like that same old, same old. And there is that, um, especially in our day and age, a very strong interest in new and improved. And yet, truly, most of what the Bible actually teaches us is a reminder of things. And it's hard for me to let go of that a little bit. Um, I had a professor that used to always say, listen, if you're coming up with new stuff, then you're making it up. Be very careful coming up with new stuff. And that's what Paul's saying here. Paul wants to remind um, the, the church in Ephesus. Paul wants Timothy to remind them of what they already know. So remind them these things and charge them. And the them would actually be to Ephesus. So remind them and charge them, command them. So call to their memory and then move them to a, to a, to a way of living. And again, um, I, I hope you're not sick of me, of, me, of me telling you this, but it is right doctrine orthodoxy and right belief orthopraxy that drives us. And we will not settle as with one opposed to the other. It is right beliefs and right practice, always walking side by side. That phrase, these things, is actually just one Greek word, and it's a very simple word. Uh, it's tauta in the Greek, and it literally is just kind of a it's, a, it's a, it's a phrase that just is whatever it is that I've been talking about. And if you look back, that these things is uh, referring to probably the previous section where he is describing um, that if we are faithful, uh, God will always be faithful. If we deny him, he will deny us, but God can never deny himself. He is calling him back to this reminder about how God desires to, to love and to save the world and about, about Paul's desire to, to live out in his own life an obedience to the gospel so that the elect might be sure on the final day. And he's saying, what I want you to do is I want to remind the church of these things. I want you to charge the church to follow these things. This is what I want you to do. And notice again the context. We saw this in Thessalonians. I want you to remind them and I want you to charge them. And what does the text say? Like before God. And I think it's good for us to, to think about just the, the kind of the fullness of what that, that, that could obviously mean. Sometimes when we use that phrase, before God, we get like the fear aspect that comes into our thoughts, Right? That before God is, oh, he's going to get us. He's going to get us. It's, but it's not just that. It's not, I, I would even say that the more that I understand the fullness of who God is, I'm taking a little bit of this from the class that I was teaching on, on Tuesday in the book of Hebrews. Um, one of the beauties that we were looking at from an Old Testament text is this. Uh, God appears to, to Moses and to the Israelites on Mount Sinai. Moses is relating the information. And it's a very simple phrase. Moses says to the people, fear not. For the Lord has come down and to demonstrate his, his great power so that you might fear him. Did you hear that? Fear not, because the Lord is demonstrating his power so that you would fear him. Okay, so should we be afraid or not? Yes, and therefore no. And, and the little part of that that continues on in Exodus chapter 20, is, it says this. So that you might not sin against him. And you're going to see that picked up in this theme. You, you need to not be afraid because you know the fear of the Lord. That's what the Bible teaches. You need to fear not because you know the fear of the Lord. And when you understand the fullness of who he is with all of his power and with all of his might and with all of his prerogative, and he stands there and you feel like naked and exposed before him, 
and you remember the true character of him. And he is gracious and kind and long-suffering. He is merciful. All of a sudden, the kind of fear that melts away comes from a trust that we have of, of Yahweh. Do you see where that comes from? So my, my fear subsides. Why? Because I know him. <laughs> Sound like elf here. Because I know him. And I, I, I know that I can trust him. Now, by the way, this is, this is shocking to the rest of the religious world. What is Baal like? Yeah, uh, is it a good day or is it a bad day? What is Molech like? I mean, listen, Molech's gonna do what Molech's gonna do. Have you talked to Dagon lately, the Philistine god? Yeah, I mean, listen, Dagon, you have no idea what you're gonna get from him, right? Because, and if you think about it, the reason why you, don't, you have no idea is because, by the way, they don't speak. These gods cannot speak. So how do we know, like, if we're pleasing the gods or not? Circumstances. This is why, as Christian people, for us to gauge our situation merely by circumstances and devoid of his word is one of the most dangerous and irresponsible ways to live. But Christians do this all the time. God must be mad at me. Why? Because I'm sick. God must be happy. Why? Because the stock market went up. God must be mad at me. Why? Because I had a car accident today. God must be happy with me. Why? Well, because my kids seem to be going pretty well. Okay, that is paganism. That's, that's like witchcraft and voodoo and abracadabra. That's like nuts. That's not the way that God, God speaks to us. So that covenantally, he says, so by the way, when I shut up the rain, I want you to remember my words to you. Don't just look at the clouds. Remember my covenant to you, my promise to you. And this is why it becomes so critical that when we, when we think about what it means, actually, to have this being reminded and this charge that is before God, it's not just one of fear. No, remember his promise. Remember his covenant to you. Remember his promise through Jesus Christ. So yes, God is the one who is our judge. God is the one who is going to uh, test us, test our hearts. I mean, it's even actually found in Exodus uh, chapters 19 and 20, that same idea. But this is the context in which we do all of life and all of ministry. We do this before God. So remind them of these things. Charge them before God. And what are they supposed to do? Not quarrel about words. Now this was a, this was a really big deal, obviously. We see this in 1 Timothy as well. Do not get wrapped up in arguments about words. And uh, he, in, in 1 Timothy, he describes and genealogies. Um, which, which, by the way, doesn't mean, here's what, here's what I don't think it means by any stretch of the imagination. It doesn't mean that trying to understand what a word means is silly or dumb. It, it, it doesn't lend us towards being lazy with our studies of the word of God. That's not what Paul, what, what Paul is describing. But to get into arguments over the meanings of words is a very dangerous way to even to apply the Bible to our lives. This, is, this, is, this, this can also become a problem. Um, it's very interesting. The more that I've studied, and I've studied at a, um, at a rather complicated and a rather deep level, I've, I've seen it literally like fall into an argument of words where it's, it's past the point of helpful. And I, I loved when some of, my, some of the most brilliant men I'd meet would just say, yeah, this, is, this has gone past the point of helpful and, and we need to stop and dial it back and we need to try to understand, again, like what the text is saying, but we're not gonna chase that rabbit that far. And he's saying, listen, we're not gonna do that. We're not gonna quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. And, and one of the reasons why I think this is true is because to argue over words takes great, man, or take, take, great, takes great mind power and with mind power comes pride. With mind power um, that, that pride usually means that all of a sudden I, I care way more about my position, I care way more about being right than I do about loving you or loving God. And Paul's going, that's just not the way, that's not the way leaders in the church should, should, should live. So verse, verse 15, do your best. And this word actually is, is one Greek word and it describes a sense of urgency um, and a sense of zeal. Like, I want you to be very proactive about this, Timothy. Do your very best to present yourself, notice the context again, present yourself to God as one approved. 
as one approved. Now, that word approved is actually very seldom used in the Bible, but I thought, I thought it was very interesting that it's antonym, right? It's opposite, um, which is, it's the same Greek word, except they just put one little letter on the front, an alpha, and it describes it as the negative, as a not, not that. So not approved is actually found um, in two different places. It's found in Titus chapter 116, where it describes what is unfit. And actually in 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verse 8, or sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8, we're going to see this uh, when we pick it up in a couple of weeks, as somebody who is disqualified. Now here's the part that's interesting, is that Paul wants Timothy to be diligent and to be urgent. And he is saying, listen, and what I want you to do is I want you to be someone who, before God, is approved. And so often in our Christian lives, all we ever talk about is best of intentions. We, we lose a lot of the sense of urgency or the sense of diligence when it comes to our faith. Now, now by the way, you, you, good news is, good bad news is, like you don't feel this way at work. Right? How many of you, when you go to work, just go, ah, you know what, I'm a doctor, but I get it right half the time. You know, yeah, I leave a couple of instruments in there after the surgery, but for the most part, I do a pretty good job. No, you want to do your job right. Like, it really matters, and so you're going to do due diligence. When it comes to your occupation, we give due diligence, and we work well, and we're successful. And, and then when it comes to, like, our faith with God, when it comes to our relationship with him, when it comes to our understanding of the word, I think I got it good enough. Every, everywhere else, we want exact, we want precision, we want diligence, we want zeal. And then when it comes to this, eh, that's what grace is for. No, actually, it's, it, that's not what grace is for. <laughs> now listen, grace exists, so I, you don't need to be worried about, about being a perfectionist. No, 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 Jesus is the only perfectionist. And we literally ride his coattails into the presence of God. But because of that, God's grace comes to us and we work diligently to be men and women approved with urgency and with zeal so that we can rightly handle these things. Now, so notice, we need to work as someone who is approved, not disqualified, not unfit, but someone who is approved, a worker, and that word is actually used as like a farmer, which we saw last week in his description of Timothy needs to work like a farmer, a very devoted and dedicated person, hardworking, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. You have no need to be ashamed. Now, what's interesting is, is that concept of shame in Paul's letters comes two different ways. The first one that the Apostle Paul says, Romans 1 describes this. Um, we also actually see it in, um, in, the, in the first chapter of this book, this idea of shame. And, and Paul says in, in chapter 1 of this book, Paul says, Timothy, please don't be ashamed of my chains. Please don't be ashamed of the fact that um, I am in prison for what I have done and uh, we look at this and it's awesome that Paul was in prison, but you have to remember back in that day, can you imagine if I said, hey, listen, I want us to follow this guy and he's kind of a rebel, um, he's in jail right now, <laughs> and I'll tell you, but he's really, he's a great guy. You go, then why is he in jail? Well, it's a misunderstanding, actually. Sure it is. Everybody in jail says it's a misunderstanding. And, and by the way, like his follower, actually the government executed him because they thought he was a traitor. Do you understand the difficulty of this? When he says, like, I don't want you to be ashamed of me, Timothy. I don't want you to be ashamed of this. And what he is describing there is, I don't want you to be ashamed of the gospel and what the gospel does. You really need to be careful of that. You really need to, to guard against that. That we need to be bold in the gospel. We need to be strong in the gospel. We need to be willing to even take on a sense of, public shame of the gospel instead of trying to separate ourselves from it. No, 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 we actually need to kind of line up with it. Paul says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for those who are being saved. That's what he says in Romans 1, one of my favorite sections, Romans 1, 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. And so that's one particular side, but here what he's saying is, listen, I want you to work, and I want you to work in such a way that you will not be ashamed. Like I want you to, and we're going to see this as it unfolds, I want you to know the word. 
I, I want you to, to, to guard your life and I want you to look deep inside yourself introspectively and ask, and I, I believe all of this is under the guidance and the direction of the Holy Spirit, and ask, and here's a question I've been asking myself a lot over about the last six or eight months, how much of my, um, how much of my, the, the sin that God is still working out in my life, I just chalk up to my personality? That's just me. I guess just Jim. So I, I, I'm allowed to be that way, actually. That's just my personality. Now, by the way, I mean, truthfully, there is a part that is truly me. And, and, and part of me is, you know, I'm an extrovert or I'm whatever. And, and, and part of that, I, I, I need to be me. God made me to be me and you to be you. I just don't think I'm speaking just to myself when I say, but you know a lot of people that excuse um, as a personality quirk, sin? Like I'm just a grumpy person. Like I'm just an angry person. Like I'm just, I'm not a happy person. That's just me, I'm not a happy person. Really, like the joy of the Lord is nothing? No, it's just me though. Really, so no joy in the Lord. Well, it's, it's a kind of joy that looks really sad and depressed. Oh, okay. That's a different kind of joy, definitely. It's just who I am. I'm a stickler. I'm a perfectionist. I'm a perfectionist. Ah, well, you could repent of that. Like you could let go of some of that stuff because it's, it's kind of hard to live with people like that. No, it's just who I am. Hmm. Really? Because I thought Jesus died to help us be more than that. And, 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 and again, I'm not saying, and so we all become this one type thing. No, there's still going to be some unique aspects of it. And I believe the Holy Spirit needs to be one to be able to, to guide us and to direct us. But we're going to see the Apostle Paul does not seem to have an attitude of, hey, listen, it really doesn't matter how you are. Just embrace yourself. No, it's recognize who you are and then recognize the Holy Spirit is doing a work on you to conform you into the image of Jesus Christ. And I've had to just stop and ask some questions. And one of the things that he's saying here is, I, I want you to work. He's describing to Timothy, but I hear him talking to me. I want you to work that it has no need to be ashamed. And the first thing that we actually notice here is this next phrase, rightly handling the word of truth. Rightly handling the word of truth. It's, again, it's interestingly enough, a lot of these are one Greek word. that they, We need lots of English words to, to pull together. It literally means to cut right. To cut right. Uh, actually, kind of the word like ortho is in it, okay? Ortho, is it orthotoc? Ortho, orthotao or something like that? Um, and and, 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 and when, interestingly enough, a lot of people talk about, and you'll see some translations, I think the King James uh, has the phrase like rightly dividing the word of truth. And I've heard people talk about it like how to divide a text, but that's not what it's describing. The word is not so much emphasizing the dividing at the cut aspect of it, but the right aspect of cutting it. It's using the word of God in a right way. Because if you don't, then there is profound shame. No need to be ashamed for you will be rightly dividing, rightly handling, it's probably a better word, rightly handling the word, the logos of truth. So this, this, this message that we have, the gospel that we have, not just preachers, not just youth ministers, moms, dads, life group leaders, um, just brothers and sisters in Christ, um, we desire to rightly give out, rightly handle the word of truth. Verse 16, but also in the process of this, avoiding irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. So that's kind of the, the picture here. First Timothy chapter 6 verse 20 talks about that. That when we get into these, we've already talked about the quarreling aspect of this, but when we get into this, these, these chasing after words, then we get into babble, which just leads to more and more ungodliness. And what happens? And their, the word is talk, but it's the same word, logos. It's their, their word, their word will spread like gangrene. The NLT actually uses the word cancer, but it, it, it's, not, it's not so much like this, this multiplication of a disease inside of you as much as it is kind of literally the, the, the word there describes um, a, like a flesh that is just decaying. And this is how it spreads, the words that they use. And he's saying, Timothy, I want you to be different than this. And then he does what, um, especially in our culture today, is like the worst thing you can do, he names names. 
I find that very interesting. And more and more that I look at it, um, if there's one thing that in our culture we prize more than anything else, it's um, anonymity, confidentiality. I mean, just imagine what it would be like if I began to just share names in preaching. Man, you'd, you'd be like, I can't believe he did that. I can't believe he did that. And, 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 and here's the part. I, I, I get part of that. I really do. I get the, the danger of sharing some of those things. I, I, I understand the need for confidentiality. But I, I'm going to play a little bit of my dad's thing here. My, my dad would always ask me whenever I would want some kind of confidentiality for some kind of privacy. My dad would always ask me, why? Like, why? Tell me why you're so obsessed with this. And if I was ever really honest, it was usually something like this. You know, because I want to do bad things. And I don't want people to know I do bad. If I ever, you know, I could never really say that to my dad, right? So I just said, I don't know. Okay, but in my mind, I remember thinking to myself so that I can do bad things, live in a bad way, but not have people think bad thoughts about me. Like I want confidentiality so that I can live a double life sometimes, if you really think about it, I know that's not always true, so don't, I'm not trying to take it to every, every form of, I don't, think, I don't think in itself confidentiality is bad or wrong. Um, I've just seen a lot, of, um, a lot of hurt come from it. And especially in this culture, they, don't, they wouldn't understand that. <laughs> they would not understand the concept of confidentiality. Um, and, and, and interestingly enough, the reason why in many ways was because they just believed the truth was, was, was better. The truth about things was better. I mean, I, I've often thought about, like, how many of you are grateful you know the story of David and Bathsheba? Right? Do you not like that story? How would you feel if you were David or Bathsheba? And yet, it's really helpful for us, isn't it? How many of you would be less interested in the Bible if it was, so anyway, person X was talking to person B, and then person C said about person A. How many of you would go, yeah, I don't, I don't like any of this? Right? We, we love to praise the Bible for its ability to speak the truth and then we hide. I think there's a cost that we pay. There's a real cost when we decide to not deal with the truth of what's going on all the way around us. But the Apostle Paul, he, he doesn't agree with most of what our, uh, our, uh, our American ethic says, our modern sensitivities. He says straight up, um, talking about, literally Paul's going, hey, talking about gangrene and really bad people, among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. Now, Hymenaeus has already been mentioned in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20, as a man who has shipwrecked his faith. And Philetus is somebody who the Apostle Paul is saying is now also uh, a mess. And one of the reasons why Paul has to name names is because he doesn't want them to, to, to be associated with others. He, he, he wants you to realize that like one of the worst things that can happen are these guys could sway you by their great communication skills. Remember in Thessalonians, I didn't use flattery. I'm not trying to impress you with speech. And these guys are dangerous. And I want you to, to be on the lookout for them. Look at verse 18. These, these two gentlemen here mentioned have swerved from the truth. So what have they swerved from? And literally the idea is not la, 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 la. Oh, how did I get lost? No, it's this is the path. I hate this way. I'm going this way. The word is an intentional deviation of what is right. And the Apostle Paul says that's what these men have done. They have intentionally deviated from what is right and they're chasing something that is clearly wrong. They've swerved from the truth saying that the resurrection has already happened. And that has some, probably some very Greek ideas about it. The Greeks were absolutely fascinated with the spiritual world and they were somewhat put off by the physical world. So anything physical was bad. And anything spiritual was good. Sadly enough, it's the reason why many of us have a view of heaven that is somewhat a clear, cloudy, us walking through each other's body kind of existence, right? You talk to people about their view of heaven, and it's a lot like Tom and Jerry, right? Sylvester and Tweety Bird, right? It's kind of our view of heaven. It really is. And it's, it's actually, interestingly enough, it's Greek. And he's saying, hey, listen, this idea that the resurrection has already happened, like that's actually not true. And um, I don't want you to have any part of that, 
And what are they doing? What, what, is, what does wrong doctrine say? When Rob Bell comes out and says, by the way, um, there really isn't a place called hell, what does that do? Look at what he says here. That upsets the faith of some of them. And we need to, as church leaders, we need to, as moms and dads, whatever the context, we need to make sure that the truth is what's being said. And lies and false truths, which aren't truths at all, upset the faith. Verse 19, but, okay, that's always good. It's a, it's a strong, um, emphatic contrast here. So this is what Hymenaeus and Philetus are doing. This is what is actually going on. Timothy, you're going to remind them and charge them of these things. You're going to watch your conduct. You're going to live as a man who is approved. These guys are trying to undercut it. And let me give you something even bigger. But God's firm foundation stands. Now, notice there's three ideas, three metaphors that the Apostle Paul is going to lift up here. Number one, God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. And that idea of both foundation shows like strength and um, uh, kind of, the, kind of the, the, the groundwork that everything else is built upon. So the firm foundation. Seal in the Bible usually depicts some kind of ownership. It's a wax seal. And whenever you would put something on it, you would, put, you would, you would sign it or you would put your, literally an impression. And it would say, this is mine. And nobody gets to touch it. Nobody gets to mess with it. And so the work of God, the reason why I believe so much in the church and why I have so much trust in what's going to happen is not because I believe in Paul or Ryan or whoever. I don't know, not, not even Morgan. No, that's not where I put my trust in. I put my trust in God and in his Holy Spirit. I put my trust in his word. And then, as Paul and Ryan and Morgan and follow, I have complete trust in them. But it is God's firm foundation bearing this seal and notice this promise, and I, I love this. Go back and read it. We, I, I thought about even reading it tonight, but we're not going to have time. But Numbers chapter 16 is a great section of Scripture. Um, if you guys remember the story, the children of Israel come out of, the, of, uh, of Egypt, and they're, they're coming out of Mount Sinai. They've already decided they don't want to go into the promised land. And then Korah leads a rebellion against Moses. And the question is, who are, who are, who are, who are the spokesmen for God? Now, by the way, God has already said Moses is the spokesperson, okay? Moses didn't, didn't say, hey, I want to be the spokesperson. Remember, he was like, I don't want to be the spokesperson. God said, no, you're going to be the spokesperson. And Korah says, hey, why, why do you get to be the spokesperson? Who's he challenging? Not challenging Moses. He's challenging God. He's challenging, hey, listen, like, why does Moses get to be? I want to be this too. And, and if you remember the story, basically God says, hey, tell you what, um, why doesn't everybody just get away from Korah? Uh, because I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you who is really mine. And the, the earth opens up and swallows Korah and all of his followers. And God goes, any other questions about who my, my, my servant is? Any other questions? Okay, and that, that becomes a, a powerful example of God demonstrating, like, these are my spokespeople. And again, if Moses were to go, yeah, look at me, he wouldn't actually do that. He's very, he's very meek. He was very humbled by the fact that God called him out to lead. But to challenge the authority of the one that God has put somewhere is a dangerous thing. Um, I, remember, I remember when my boys were young, I remember telling them that they needed to, to know this this, this, this great truth, my, my family, Andrea and I decided we were going to get kind of down, milk it down to, to these major three rules um, that we were going to always kind of lift up in front of our kids, especially when they were little. Truth, respect, and obedience. Truth, respect, and obedience. And that obedience one, we, we talked about a lot. And I remember t looking at the boys and just saying they were really little, like, you got to obey your mom. And you got to obey your dad. You got to obey me. You just have to. And, and when you go to school, you're going to obey your teachers. And I'll tell you, um, if I find out you didn't obey your teachers, it will not be good for you coming home. My kids have never felt um, encouraged or supported by me uh, against their teachers. <laughs> um, and that's, and honestly, not, I mean, I'll, I'll listen to common sense, but for whatever reason, uh, I, I just like teachers. And it's, and I love my kids, but listen, they're kids, right? They're going to... Yeah, and then the teacher, and it's like, yeah, that probably didn't happen. Can I please talk to a grown-up? So I'm talking to these teachers, and I'm realizing, like, God put them in authority. I'm wired up that way, and I, I get a lot of it from Scripture. Not that I, not that I, I, I have no common sense, not, none of that, but there is something important about authority. 
And, and this is so true even in the church. It, it's why I take very seriously everything else that I've said here. As, and as a, as a pastor, as, um, as an elder, um, man, it weighs heavy on me. And honestly, I'm not, I'm not even so worried about you, but I just, I know that before God, I know that trying to be someone who is standing and, and, and tested and approved, um, man, I, I don't want to hear just good, good or well done, good and faithful servant um, for my own sake, but just recognizing the responsibility that God has given me. And it is so important that we recognize this critical piece that Paul is describing here. And notice what he's saying. Timothy, I'm gonna put you out there and I need you to stand up and I need you to boldly say these things. You'll see why humility is so critical in a church leader. The Lord knows those who are his. Number 16.5, I think is what he's drawing from. And let everyone who names the name, I love that, literally it's, the, it's to name the name. To name the name of the Lord, may they depart from iniquity. So how... How do we know that there are leaders of God? One of the ways that we know that, 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 that people are leaders of God is that they, they renounce iniquity, that they repent well, that they don't embrace sin, that they humble themselves before, before others and before God ultimately. Um, this is why when we, when we, going back and looking at 1 Timothy chapter 3, that when we say, listen, like we believe that Craig Armstrong will be an elder. We're not saying he's a, a perfect person who's never done anything wrong, but he's a man above reproach. And that, that, that is, I mean, whenever we talk about future elders at this church, um, they just go, oh, boy, I just, this is so, this is so overwhelming. This is so daunting. And one of the reasons why is because they need to be known as men who have departed from iniquity. We don't, we don't live in that. We don't, we don't celebrate that. We don't, we don't embrace sin. We don't excuse sin, but we, we depart from iniquity. And what's interesting and, and sad at the same time is that we just don't take holiness and the departing from sin serious enough. If anything, we love to celebrate. And when I, when I say celebrate, I don't mean like, hey, look at this great sin that I'm doing, but we love to celebrate our brokenness, do we not? We love to celebrate our brokenness instead of the holiness that exists. Indeed, if anybody talks about being holy, it kind of makes us a little bit standoffish. Yeah, well, then they don't either get me or something else is broken, but that's actually not the biblical mandate. The biblical mandate is that we depart from iniquity. We, 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 separate, we separate ourselves from it. And the Apostle Paul is saying here, saying, listen, the Lord knows who are his. He will protect those who are his. How do you know who are his? They are men and women who depart from iniquity. Verse 20. So he's already talked about a foundation and he's talked about a seal. Now he's gonna talk about a great house. Now in a great house, meaning a really, really big house, in a great, that's really all it means, big house. In a big house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Now, um, I was, I was a little bit surprised. I don't think I'd ever really studied this before. Uh, the concept here is that if you were just in a normal house um, that didn't have very, very much, then in the end, literally everything was, was there was very few things that would be there. But the, the, the bigger a house would get, the more literally items they would use. This is gonna sound like I'm being distasteful. I'm really not trying to be. Do you guys know what the left-hand concept is in certain cultures? Okay. Which would be this one, not this one. Okay. The left hand is a hand that you don't shake with, you don't eat with, because it is a hand to clean yourself with when you go to the bathroom. Okay? And so the left hand, you don't shake, you don't, you don't eat. Um, this, this word that is used here for the dishonorable is probably uh, describing in this great house, not only like utensils that you would eat on, but also utensils that you would take to empty out the bathroom. Okay? That's, that's kind of where he's going with this. So you have all these utensils that are used in a home. And there are some that are very honorable, things that we eat with. And there are others that are very dishonorable. They're actually like dirty. And they, 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 they are, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of, in essence, especially in a Jewish context, they're unclean. And he is saying, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself, 
from what is dishonorable, meaning those things which have left me ceremonial unclean. And that's, that's where you kind of have to understand here. Um, those kinds of things that existed in that are normal part of life would, would render people unclean, okay? So whenever you have recognized that you're, un, that you're unclean, but you cleanse yourself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, and ready for every good work. What he's describing here is he's saying to Timothy, listen, there is this firm foundation. There is this great seal of ownership. There is this great house. And when we set ourselves to be workmen approved, when we set ourselves to be holy and different, when we depart from these kinds of things, instead of being unclean and dishonorable people, we're not. We are a different people. Um, it's been really interesting. Just in the last couple of days, I've had some incredible conversations with people um, who are not typically from Stillwater or even from this country. Um, and they have, they, it's, it's fun, it's, fun inter, it's, it's very interesting to hear them just describe what, whether it be Sunnybrook or whether it be Stillwater, but particularly Sunnybrook, like how they view us, like how they look at us, how we treat them, and how important it is <laughs> That there is a, a, a sense of, of kindness, that there is a sense of, of love, there is a sense of appreciation. It literally separates us as to whether or not we are going to be useful in God's purposes or not useful. And it's not just, and what's interesting is, is that so much, we, we get that, we, get, we really need to be kind and nice, but more than that, like we need to be holy. We need to be like dedicated to the Lord's services and not to our own. And the Apostle Paul is describing here um, this, this different way that Timothy is called to live to demonstrate to the people around him that he is truly a workman for God. Verse 22, he continues on. So, uh, and notice how these two words are gonna go together even though they're gonna be separated from a couple of other words. So flee and pursue. What is he to flee? Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness. And he's going to continue on in this list. Um, th- this is a little bit of the idea of, of, of when I was younger, I acted a certain way, but now that I get older, and especially under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, Paul says, I used to do this, but now I do this. I used to live like this, but now I live like this. I used to think like this, but now I am mature. He's saying to Timothy, flee youthful passions, pursue righteousness, right, standing before God, pursue faith, which in the context probably means faithfulness, like be a faithful person, be someone who um, knows the word of God, who is consistently, um, again, measuring up to what God's word expects of us and demands of us, which by the way, God's word nowhere says that we need to live perfect lives. We live lives pursuing him. And just because you don't get it right all the time doesn't mean you're not in right standing with God. That's so critical for us to see. And so often, because we've got you know, a struggle or because we've got a sin that exists in our lives, instead of doing the biblical thing, which is to recognize it, repent of it, um, confess it before others and God particularly, and, and kind of recognize his forgiveness to us, we either cover it up or we just kind of pretend and go on. But no, to be faithful is to recognize what God is doing and to pursue him. And so here's we see it. I want you to pursue righteousness and faith. I want you to pursue love and peace. This word peace, is this is the only place in which it's found outside of the salutation and benediction in, in, in any of his letters um, to Timothy and to Titus. Pursue peace, which you'll see come up here at the end of this chapter, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Um, That word call is very similar to the idea of to name the name, to appeal to Jesus, to call out to him. And obviously, how do we do this? We do this with a pure heart. And how do we do this as a pure heart? Well, we recognize that God is our witness and that God is our judge. And when I realized I could probably trick Jeff, but I could never trick him. I might be able to confuse Tom, but I could never confuse him. I may be able to find a way that you might think, but I will never be able to That's why that pure heart is so critical. Verse 23, have nothing to do, see it keeps going back to this, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. 
which you see back in verse 14. You're going to see about quarrelsome in verse 24. They breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant, now he goes after Timothy's heart here. So it's not just a matter of don't do these things. It's don't be the kind of person that wants to do these things. Both of them are necessary. Don't, don't be quarrelsome is where he's going to go with this. And the Lord's servant, which by the way is someone who is approved, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. He must not be looking for a fight. He must not be arguing over words or wrapped up in foolish controversies. But instead of that, he must be kind. And this is the only place that this particular Greek word is used in all of Paul's letters. Um, and the word for kind here really is, is, is very closely associated with the word that I've kind of linked it up to in the, on, the, on the page, which is gentle. There's a kindness and there's a gentleness that he describes, which by the way, one of the reasons why I went to the Thessalonians material is that's how Paul described himself. Remember how gentle I was with you. So a, uh, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, which we've seen that before, patiently enduring evil. Now, again, one Greek word, patiently enduring evil. Here's what the concept is. It's a very interesting word. It literally means that you stand in the way and you absorb all of this pain and you don't get bitter and you don't become angry and you don't lash out, but you absorb it. Like you, you, this is so interesting. Like you take it in, but it doesn't pollute you. Um, a, a word that you, you could be, be associated with this one in the English would be long suffering, which is a fascinating idea. I, I, I thought a lot about. There's a famous pastor that, that was uh, was was working out in the Seattle area for a long time, and he. Uh, had a phenomenal ministry that was growing like crazy and then kind of near the end of his ministry and everything kind of unraveled and he didn't have an affair and he didn't have, um, he didn't, he didn't, didn't steal any money. He did none of those things. Um, he was kind of known as being very prideful, very arrogant. Um, and, and he, he, he did not get this one right at all. He did not, he had to face a lot of controversy. And I remember listening to him and being very, even especially in my younger days, very impressed by him because he was just so, ah! And it just seemed so, I don't know, biblical, right? And today when I was just kind of finishing up some stuff in the bottom part of this, I just thought, like, I wonder if that's what bit Mark. Was he didn't have this. Which by the way, just leads to Pride. To be able to lash out, I remember um, reading a, a very interesting book uh, written by a farmer um, that served in World War II. And he had written this book about his, um, his, his service over in the, in the Pacific. And this, this gentleman, um, I guess was, I never met him, but very, I think he had passed away by the time I even picked up his book, but um, he just described everything that had happened and I remember reading this book and thinking, this man is a very mean, angry, vindictive, spiteful person. And the, the part where it made it more complicated was I could understand why, because he described what he went through. He described um, certain places in China, walking up and seeing his, you know, the guys from his, whatever, he was in battalion or whatever, his squad, um, like at times crucified their bodies mutilated. And so he loved mutilating other people. He describes this. Because this is what war does to you. And it does, doesn't it, right? Not, not everybody, hear me, not everybody. But you know what I'm talking about? It's kind of like you become hard. You become like that. It, it is. It's, it's, it's one of the casualties that actually exists in war. It's, it's just hard to endure those things without it just changing you. And the Apostle Paul says here that one of the marks of, a, of the Lord's servant, and this is why I think the Apostle Paul looked so closely at Christ and particularly his crucifixion and his arrest and his betrayal. And what did he see? He saw someone patiently enduring evil. 
and yet he did not open his mouth. Like he did not lash out. He did not pray for divine judgment to be poured down. And this is the example of Christ. And so often we want to be someone who um, helps exact revenge, helps settle the score, helps even, I mean, um, I, I, and I, I catch myself in this. I, I listen to, uh, I, can get, I can get wrapped up in, in current events. Anybody else kind of watch the news? And kind of get excited with a this and then that. We really got them. We really stuck it to them, didn't we? Wasn't that awesome? And then this and then we got them. We really got them. Was that not awesome? And this, this kind of was one of those things where I don't know if that's what absorbing pain is. Not to be quarrelsome, not to be, um, not, not to lash out, not to seek revenge. And I'll tell you, the, the most amazing thing is, and yet Timothy cannot back down. Look at how this continues. So you need to be able to teach, you need to absorb all of this, you can't let it affect you, and by the way, you also need to keep correcting your opponents. <laughs> so you can't just run and hide under your desk, Timothy. Like, it's like, okay, well, can I get mad or can I just, like, quit? Um, no and no. You can't get mad and you can't become like them. You need to turn the other cheek and pray for your enemies and you need to love those who persecute you. You need to do all of these things. Oh, I'd rather, you know what I mean? I'd rather just quit. I'm sure you would. You don't have that option either. Correcting your opponents with gentleness. And then look at, look, at, look at how he ends this. This is fascinating to me. God may perhaps grant them <laughs> repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses. Literally, the phrase means, and they might become sober. <laughs> it kind of uses the drunk analogy. That coming to their senses literally is They'll, 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 they'll wake up from their drunken stupor. They will become sober and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. I, I thought about the words that Paul says to the Ephesians when he says, for we do not fight against, do you remember what he says? We do not fight against what? Flesh and blood. But against the principalities and powers, against the rulers of this dark age. And I have to be reminded of that because I, I want to fight people. And Paul says, no, 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 we pray for people. We correct people. Again, this isn't about being soft, is it? No, 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 you correct people and you remind people and you charge people, you rebuke people. You always do so with gentleness and kindness. Wow. With gentleness and kindness. Why? Because we're not out to win a fight. Because the fight has already been won by Jesus. Do you understand that? And I'm not out to prove a point. The point has already been proven by Jesus. And I'm here to witness to it. I'm here to talk about it. I'm here to demonstrate it. But part of that demonstration that Jesus Christ demonstrated to me was not just being right. But being right in a godly way. So when Jesus hangs on the cross... He has no desire to vindicate himself. For God will be the one to vindicate him. And the Apostle Paul has no problem. I mean, you say what you want. I'm going to trust God to be my vindicator. That is hard, is it not? I'll never forget. I'll close with this. I'll never forget when um, uh, there was a, a time in the college's history where uh, there was an accident that had actually happened on I-44. I think I'm allowed to talk about it because it's all been settled. But there was an accident on, on I-44 one of our students was really hurt, and um, the family began to sue the college. And I'll never forget, kind of, I, I knew because of just my, uh, my, my job in the administration, I knew of a lot of what was going on. I knew of all these amazing things that the college was doing, and I even knew um, the church in the Branson area um, that was stirring up a lot of, and they were saying like bad things about the college. Like false things, not just bad, but false things about how we didn't really care and we had taken up an offering and gave it to the family. We had done all these things and um, it just, it bothered me. I just wanted to make it right. And I, I was gonna be in the area and um, the president came in and just said, hey, 
maybe because he knows me. <laughs> uh, just let it go. No, 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 you don't understand. There's an injustice. Just let it go. But don't we need to correct this? And I'll never forget Ken Ottoman saying, no, we don't. We will let the Lord do it in his time. And oh, I thought, you're crazy. And to watch the Lord say, and I'll never forget, about three summers after that, I was in the bottom part of Southern Illinois University, and I, I met this gentleman. I'd never met him before. And he said, are you still at the college? And I said, yeah. And he said, man, I, just, I need to apologize to you guys. I said, for what? He said, I said some really bad things about you guys because I didn't have all the truth. And uh, now I just feel foolish. <laughs> I remember going, sure, I'm glad I didn't do that. Why? God is going to take care of it, is he not? Again, can't hide under the desk, but we can't become like the world. We just can't. Why? Because our example is Jesus. And we put our trust in him and he who died, trusting God to vindicate. That is our example. Let's pray. God, thank you for our time tonight and for the reminder um, that we are to be courageous and remind and charge others, that we are to look deep inside of ourselves and, and become a, a more repentant people of our brokenness. God, thank you for the firm and sure foundation of your church. Thank you for the, God, that all of us who name your name, who call upon your name, that God, more than us knowing you, I love the fact that you know us. What hope we have. And Father, I pray that as we make a difference in Stillwater, that no matter what anybody says, that we would care about you, that we would do everything before you, and we would do everything in a way that we would be men and women approved. That is why we so desperately need your spirit. May we run our businesses and families and workplaces. May we live in our communities and in our civic, or civic responsibilities in such a way God, that people would know that we are yours. It's in Christ's name we pray all of these things. Amen.